Thank you, Mike. Thank you, everybody on the worship team. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, where we're continuing our study through the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible. We urge you to read it and open your heart up and just say, hey, if this is God's word, what does it say? And I want to know what it says. And Jesus said, if anyone's willing to do God's will, he'll know whether his teaching is from God. You'll know that it's the truth as you come and are willing to listen. Well, it's good to be back with you all. Unfortunately, last Sunday, I had to go down and see my daughter in Arizona, and it was only 80. And um, as I was sitting out on the blanket that afternoon with my shirt off and soaking up the sun, playing with the grandkids, it got so hot I had to get out of the sun. So... I, um, I had to remind myself, why am I getting back on this plane and going back to Philadelphia? Then I remembered my family here. So we had a nice time. We'd appreciate your prayers. Our uh, daughter is due with their third baby in July, and they're hoping and praying to move up here if he can find work. So thank you for your prayers. We're in the book of Genesis, and we're doing a study called Faith of Our Fathers because we're learning that the story of the Bible, the story of redemption, is a story that is still going on today. And we can learn from all of our forefathers. The Bible says whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction. And so we said when you read the book of Genesis, there's four sections. The first section is creation. We saw that it gives a framework for how we got here, right? Then there's the fall, Adam and Eve and original sin, eating the forbidden fruit and how it brought corruption and condemnation and a curse on creation. And then we said that the results of the fall led to to a a growing corruption in the earth. And so in Genesis 4, we read about Cain and Abel. Last week, Pastor Bob did chapter 5, where we saw how death was permeating this earth. But there were a few bright spots, like Enoch, who walked with God. And then we saw that as it came to Noah's time, that it was time for God to destroy the earth with a flood. And so the last section of Genesis 12 through 50 is the creation of a nation for redemption. And we're going to come to that. But today... We're going to talk about Noah's Ark, and we're going to begin in chapter 6, verse 9. So let's pray before we look at this. Father, may your Holy Spirit help us to realize that what happened in Noah's day is a real, true, historical event, and it's one that so many people have forgotten or never heard or never thought about the implications. So may your word come alive. May Jesus... Be the center of every message here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. First question I want to ask is, if you've ever heard the story of Noah's Ark, is what did the Ark look like? You ever thought about this? I think, I think that we do a disservice, and I mean this seriously, because this is the kind of stuff that we teach in Sunday school, right? And so our kids see this kind of stuff, and then as they get a little bit older and they go to, to school and they start interacting with science and geography and history, And they start going, you know, that's kind of ridiculous, right? That Noah's Ark was kind of like a little bathtub with a a little party-like thing. And so as we go through this passage, I want you to be thinking about that. What what did the Ark look like? And I want to give you some some things to think about. But we're going to start in verse 9, and we're going to read up through chapter 8. And we're going to ask some questions like, what did it look like? We're going to ask the question of, why do people today overlook the story of the flood? Why don't we talk about that? And then finally, what are the the lessons that we could learn? Because Jesus spoke of Noah's Ark 
The author of Hebrews remembered Noah's Ark. Peter brought up Noah's Ark in 1 Peter, and if that wasn't enough, he went back to Noah's Ark in 2 Peter. So we'll end up talking about how it relates to us. But let's make sure that we get the story from the Bible, not from the movie. So start with me in verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Now when we're reading the Bible, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. When the Bible says Noah was a righteous man, there are many Scriptures that say there is no one righteous, no one who's good, we're all sinful. So when the Bible describes someone as being righteous, we learn that that righteousness is a status that God confers on them because of their faith. So Noah wasn't righteous in that he was a perfect man who never sinned, but Noah was a believer, and he believed God. He had submitted his life to God, and he trusted that God would forgive his sin. And those who are true believers then, having received that status of righteousness, seek to walk with God and learn to do what's right. But Noah was the only one. And verse 10 tells us he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now, I want you to think about this. As you envision what life was like in Noah's day, we know that the people were bad, but, but we often forget that violence was probably the chief thing that was characterizing this corruption. And so imagine back then, somebody's breaking into your house, or someone's assaulting your child, or someone's stealing from someone else, and you observe this. What recourse did you have? What did you dial? 911? Was there an army? Were there police? Was there any way to protect yourself? Imagine the hideous horror of what it would be like to live in this anarchy. In fact, at the end of the flood, to make sure that it didn't go back to this, this is why God instituted government. Government wasn't man's idea, it's God's idea. As soon as they got off the ark, God, to prevent this from happening again, he says, from now on, we're gonna do things different. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so God was the one, we learned from Romans, who instituted government to protect and praise people who do what's right and to punish people who do what's wrong. And so the world's out of control, and you think, oh, well, those people, that would never happen today. Really? Turn on the news anytime there's a blackout. And people aren't behaving themselves because nowadays people are good. People are behaving themselves primarily nowadays because there's a restraint called the law. And all you have to do is look anywhere in our country where the law is unable to, to function, and people are out of control again. Then God said to Noah, verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them and I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Again, I want you to picture, what did this ark look like? Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You'll make the ark with rooms and covered inside and out with pitch, which would be like dark tar of some sort. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Now a cubit, according to... Old Testament scholars, was about the distance from your elbow to your fingertips, which is somewhere between 18 and 21 inches. So think of the dimensions here. 300 cubits. That would be somewhere around 350 feet. 
That's, that's one and a half football fields. So we're not talking about a, a, a little rowboat. We're talking about a massive, massive, big box. In fact, we learn from the scriptures that it took Noah over a hundred years to build the ark, and, and he must have had help. He couldn't possibly have done this by himself. Look at verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. You're like, that sounds like, a, like the Royal Caribbean that I was on with three decks. And behold, I even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. I want you to notice this phrase, my covenant. This is the first time in the Bible that God introduces the concept, at least he expresses the idea of a covenant. And as you read through the Bible, you'll find that God throughout history would come down at times and introduce another covenant. Like later on in chapter 12, he's gonna come to Abraham and he's gonna make a covenant with Abraham that from the nation of Abraham that would be formed from his descendants that God would bless the entire world through Christ. And then as time went on and God began to develop the nation of Israel, he made the covenant of the law with them in Exodus chapter 19. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. And then as time went on, when David became king and he wanted to build a house for God, God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, David, that one of your descendants will reign forever. The Messiah will reign over the house of Israel. And then as the prophets continued to call the Jews back to God, Jeremiah in chapter 31, the Lord reveals to him, behold, I will make a new covenant, not like the old covenant that I made with the house of Israel. And Jesus Christ, when he comes to earth, the night of the Passover, he looks at the disciples and he picks up the bread and the cup and he says, this is the new covenant, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And one of the things that's interesting about all of the covenants of God is that all of them point to a relationship with God. That those to whom God brings to himself through covenant, it was with the purpose of having a relationship with them. And those of us who are believers have come to Christ and are participants of this new covenant whereby he has given us the free forgiveness of sins. But even at this time, he's beginning to introduce that he's a God of covenant that wants to bring people to himself and you can depend on his promises. Verse 19. Every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and the mammals after their kind. Of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you. In fact, there's a, there's a story that says three vultures tried to get on. And Noah stopped them, and they're like, what's the problem? He said, I'm sorry, you're only allowed to carry on. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's a story. I may have happened. Verse 21, as for you, take for yourself some of all the food which is edible. Gather it for yourself, and it will be food for you and them. And thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. So again, we throw up a story like this. We say, hey, this is what the ark looked like. And our kids, as they get older, they're going, come on, Seriously? So probably we should be doing more like the stuff that people at Answers in Genesis and other uh, Christian organizations have done. Probably the ark looked more like that. Well, think about that. 
at that size, 437 feet, and at that width and height, it's been estimated that it could hold 522 railroad stock cars. Five, you know, you've been at a train that has 50, and you're like, well, that thing ever in 522 of them. And then the whole idea of animals, and you're going, come on, three stories. What about dinosaurs, right? Come on, there's no way, you know, Fred Flintstone. Well, here's an interesting fact. The average size of a dinosaur, according, based on the skeletons that have been dug up, is about the size of a sheep. Now, I'm not saying Noah was a rocket scientist, but if I was bringing two dinosaurs on the ark, I wouldn't bring Dino, right? Just bring two small ones, okay? But think about what this was like to have all of these animals on the ark, three levels, right? So it probably looked more like this, if you'll bring up the next slide. Someone took a, a dimension and said, you know, think about this is what it would look like in a neighborhood. And you go, wow, sheesh, come on. They couldn't build like that back then. Well, again, remember, the Bible teaches that it took him over 100 years to build this thing. He didn't throw this up with some supplies from Home Depot overnight. But one of the interesting background things that we need to remember is that the entire time that he was doing this, we learned from 2 Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now imagine what it would be like to have lived in Noah's day and to be building this thing. I'm sure it was the talk of the town in a, in a negative way. Like, hey, did you hear about that moron? He's been building this boat. You got, you got I can't even describe it. You got to come see it, right? And faithfully, day by day, Noah would tell people, hey, the reason I'm doing this is because it's going to rain. And of course, that in itself was ridiculous because it, it didn't rain back then. They had never seen rain. In fact, the whole idea of a flood, see, mention flood around here, and everybody just connects. If you're from Yardley, you're like, Yardley flood, we get it. But the whole idea of a flood was, was unheard of. There's no such thing. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews, by faith Noah being warned of God by things not yet seen. So imagine what it was like to be pleading with your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors. Hey, God's going to flood the earth. And I want to invite you to join me on this earth, or on this ark. You know, it really struck me. I, I was in prayer last week. I was really pleading with God for lost people. And I have a long list of lost people that I've been praying for for a long time. And I was kind of losing heart. Because I was like, God, I've been begging you for these people for the longest time. And I'm not seeing much happening. And it's been a long time. And I began to question, should I keep doing this? And I went to church with my daughter last Sunday, and just in a passing reference, the, the, the speaker said, you know, think about Noah. He preached for 120 years, and nobody listened. But yet, he said this, he got his family on the ark, and that made it worth all the while, didn't it? T to know that even if no one else listened, at least his family joined him on the ark. So, so with that sort of a framework, we're going, okay, here's a guy living in a godless culture. People are mocking him. There's violence all over the place. I imagine that he probably had vandalism, and I don't think people were just like, oh, leave him alone, he's the holy man. So this was a tough time to live, and this was a tough life of faith, to be obedient to God in the midst of such a godless time. Let's keep reading, chapter seven. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I've seen to be righteous before me in this time. Take every clean animal by sevens, a male and female and animals that are not clean, too, a male and female. 
and also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights, I'll blot them out from the face of the land. Every living thing that I've made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Now, the idea of clean and unclean animals was not whether they were filthy. It had to do with animals that God had designated for sacrifice. And so we learn from the Bible that God had ordained from the beginning that the penalty for sin would be the shedding of blood by an innocent substitute. And so as time went on, we learned that this was always pointing us to Christ, that ultimately he would be the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for all of our sins. But it's also interesting that God, at the end of over 100 years, he goes, he got seven more days. And think about Noah like a harvest crusade. The campaign is winding down, right? I wonder if those last seven days, Noah didn't just plead with a little more urgency, knowing, okay, this is my last time. Did, did he go to his neighbors? Did he say, guys, it's coming. There's only a week left. And I wonder, I wonder what kind of conversations, I wonder what kind of interactions he had with people around him as they're like, no, what are you talking about? You moron? No. Verse six, now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came on the earth and then Noah and his sons and his wives entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Now I'm wondering about this because we're gonna learn that God closed the door. So they're walking up the ark and he's looking back and are there, is there anybody watching him get on? You know, are they going, this guy is whacked. He is nuts. What are those people made of? What are they smoking? They're nuts, right? And it came about after seven days that the water of the flood came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Now, there are people who believe that the flood was local. There was just a little local flood, which, which really there's a lot of, we could talk about many, many reasons why that, that takes more faith to believe than the flood of the earth. But, but if indeed he did flood the earth, right, we have mountains on this earth that sometimes are like five miles above sea level. And knowing that, you know, what water does seeking its own level, to cover a five-mile mountain means the water has to rise in equal height all the way over the earth. And you're going, look, even if it rained 40 days and 40 nights, there's no way that's enough water. See, you have to understand here that this was not a shower, a rain shower. Look at verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. What's that talking about? Well, remember, when God created the earth, it was already covered with water, right? He did something to cover it with water. So there's plenty of water to cover it. But when he was drying up the earth to bring land out of it, the Bible says he took some water canopy of water that he placed above the earth and then the rest of the water he put in the seas and he stored it in these fountains of the great deep under the earth we know there's a lot of water under the earth right so when God decided to flood the earth again he didn't just let it trickle down with rain this water was coming down just in gallons right and, and for it to come out of the earth, we're not talking about little geysers and springs. We're talking about probably ripping, gaping chasms in the earth for this massive amount of water to come bursting out. 
And you know, it's interesting because there's evidence for a worldwide flood. Archaeologists are, are kind of puzzled when they find fossils of fish on the tops of mountains. But you know, there's another thing that I find fascinating, and that is things like the Grand Canyon, right? Because if we look at the Grand Canyon, nobody knows how it got there, but an evolutionary, atheistic, uniformitarian outlook would simply say this. Look, the Earth is billions of years old, and so the Grand Canyon was caused by a little bit of water over a long period of time. But you read something like that and you go, is it possible that the Grand Canyon was caused by a whole lot of water over a short period of time? And we're told, that's ridiculous, okay? Ready for this? I wonder if there's a little bias on the earth. Ken Ham uh, has put together a couple interesting slides. This was in the Cincinnati Enquirer. A flood of biblical proportions enough to fill the Mediterranean Sea gushed down from the highlands of Mars a billion years or so ago. The latest pictures from the Pathfinder confirm Monday. Now, the reason they came to that conclusion is the Pathfinder took pictures of Mars, Mars and they found a big canyon on Mars, and they're like, wonder how that canyon got there. And they go, there must have been a flood that caused this huge canyon. And you're going, well, can I just ask a question? There's no water on Mars. Right, but this isn't this isn't the kind of stuff we're talking about that you read in the tabloids uh, at the at the at the grocery store. Look at this next article. This is an AP article, right? I think it was from the Washington Post. So th these are scientists who've come to this conclusion. They see this they see this canyon on Mars, water roaring out of an overfilled lake carved an instant Grand Canyon, more than a mile deep on the surface of Mars. Up to 40% of the Martian surface, you ready for this? It could have been covered with water. So they're going, look, there's this huge canyon. Water must have done that. And we go, there's no water there. And they go, yeah, but it could have, right? In fact, they had one guy came up with a theory that maybe the hydrogen and the oxygen separated. You know, the H2O came apart. That's why there's no water there now. Maybe that's why Mars looks kind of rusty, right? So unlike, this is what scientists are saying, right? Unlike Arizona's Grand Canyon, which was carved over millions of years by the Colorado River, they named this canyon on Mars, Madame Valley, was made within a matter of months, certainly less than a year. Really fascinating. If Mars was once so wet, where did the water go? Nobody knows for sure, right? So, so again, you look, we, we're all looking at the same evidence. We're looking at this Earth, and we're going, well, why is it not quite possible that the, the, the canyons on the earth were formed by these chasms that were split open and water came bursting out. So, with that in mind, we go, all right, so what's going on here? Verse 12, the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and on the same day, Noah, Shem, Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So this is sort of a retelling, which is common in Hebrew narrative. They and every beast after its kind, all the cattle after their kind, creeping things after their kind, every bird after its kind. So they went into the ark by twos in which was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, enters that God had commanded him. Now don't miss this phrase. And the Lord closed it behind him. Never forget, there, is come a, there does come a time when God says it's too late. The door is locked. Right? Everybody thinks they've got unlimited access. There comes a time when God says it's too late. 
Proverbs chapter 1, God says, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and you wouldn't listen. Therefore, I will mock when your calamity comes. And you will cry to me. For the waywardness of the fool will slay them. And so we can already sort of go, wow, that kind of sounds like life today when we tell them Jesus is coming. So God closes the door. Then the floods came upon the earth for 40 days. The water increased and lifted up the ark. It rose above the earth and the water prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more on the earth so the mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle, beasts, swarming things that swarm. Of all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Once one guy did a calculation in order to rise to that height, he suggested that the water must have been rising at the pace of 30 feet an hour. I kind of get scared when it's like half an inch, right? I'm like, they said, they said we got a whole inch last hour, right? 30 feet an hour. And, and, and again, picture what's going on on earth. Are, are, are people rushing up hillsides, mountainsides? Do they think, ah, we still got this? Or do they get it? Do they realize this is it? It's interesting, in the book of Revelation, it says men will flee to the mountains when Jesus comes and they'll hide under the rocks and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Did they realize that the wrath of God was now being poured out upon them? Go down to chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and he caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. And all the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat, which would be in modern-day Armenia. And the the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he made. Now you go, wonder what that was like. He, he, he's been on the ark now. We're going to learn that he's been on the ark for almost a year. Okay? So he didn't get off on day 41. He's been on the ark for a year. Now I can tell you, I would not want to live on an ark with all the animals of the earth for a year. I'm not even sure I want to do it for a night would be noisy, and I assure you it was stinky, right? And, and it wasn't comfortable. So when he finally looks out and he sees land, I would be like, get me out of this thing. Uh, having just flown last week, it, it, it kind of reminded me of when your plane lands, isn't it? It's, it's just a fascinating study of human nature. The plane lands, and they pull in the tarmac, and you come up to the gate, and everybody jumps up, right? And then what do we do? We just stand there, you know, and we wait for another hour until we can move and so imagine the patience that God was teaching no 120 years of building it then he's on it for a year and then when he finally can see land he's still got to wait a couple more weeks before he can get off now Bible scholars love to try to find deeper meanings in passages like this and so we're going to find out that Noah released a raven and then he released a dove and so when you're reading the Bible, one of the things that we are trying to encourage you to do is to learn how to read the Bible well and read it, interpret it properly. And so what we have here is what's called typology, where some people find deeper meanings and pictures and types in many, many different things. And so, you know, 
people would argue that the raven represented sin or Satan or rebellion and, and that the dove, because the Holy Spirit came as a dove, the dove represents the peacefulness of the Holy Spirit, things like that. just want to caution you that, you know, it's not impossible, but it's so subjective that be careful to, to try to read too much into things like this. These stories really happen, but, but unless the Bible sort of points us to see that, yeah, this dove represented the Holy Spirit, let's just be a little bit restrained, but not, you know, over the top. Finally, after sending the dove out and the ravens out, verse 12 says, he waited another seven days and the dove didn't return. And it came about in the 601st year, in the first of the first month, the water was dried up from the earth. So going back to chapter six, then we learn it's about a year, a little less than a year. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your son's wives. And bring out with you all the living things that creep on the earth. And go and breed abundantly and be fruitful. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, everything that moves out. You know, what would the first thing you do when you got back onto dry land? It's really striking to me that the Bible says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. The first thing he did is he worshipped. The first thing he did is to come and, and express his, his gratitude to God. And, and he didn't come up with the idea of a sacrifice. This is what God had revealed to him. And this is the mark of a righteous person. This is the mark of a believer that, that we worship God. That, that we don't go, oh boy, I'm having my best life now. Because I can tell you, living on an ark was not your best life now. But we worship. We worship when good things happen. We seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to worship Jesus day after day. And, and the greatest act of worship for the Christian is not to throw a couple dollars in the plate, but the Bible says God wants us to present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. And that this is pleasing to God when we as believers offer ourselves and say, God, I wanna live my life for you and not for me. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and he said to him, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You go, wow, that's quite a story. So what am I gonna do with that? Well, I want us to spend the last 10 minutes looking at what the New Testament does with the story of Noah. And I wanna begin by asking you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're not familiar with the books of the Bible, just write down the verses. You can look them up later or there's a table of contents or if the person next to you has it, just grab their Bible and hand them yours and they can look it up. But Hebrews chapter 11 has often been referred to as faith's hall of fame because it lists people from the past who by faith were pleasing to God and the key verse of Hebrews 11 is, is chapter 11, verse 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And the first lesson we learn from the story of Noah is that a life of faith is the life that pleases God. Because the next verse is going to mention Noah. But I want to talk about faith for a minute. I want you to think about biblical faith. Biblical faith 
is not just, oh, I believe in God. Biblical faith is always a response to God's revelation. God always acts first. God says something. God gives a promise. God gives a warning. Biblical faith then believes what God says and then acts upon it. So when the Bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen, it's basically saying, if God said it, I believe it, and now I'm going to follow it. And so right after saying that a life of faith is what pleases God, look at verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Isn't this what Christianity is? We're warned of things not yet seen. Jesus tells us he's coming again. Jesus tells us that there's going to be a day of judgment. Jesus tells us that unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Come and follow me. And a life of faith is a life that says, I believe that and I'm following that. And I'm willing to turn my back. And I'm willing to trust and obey Jesus because he gave his life for me. And as I thought about this life of faith, I thought, wow, real biblical faith is obedient. It obeys what God says. Real biblical faith is patient. It's hardworking. This biblical faith of Noah was willing to endure scoffing. He was willing to have people laugh at him. He was willing to be misunderstood because he believed what God promised and his life was different. Does that sound like your faith? Are you clinging to a faith that says, hey, listen, I believe every word of Jesus. I believe he's coming again. I love him. I trust him. I give myself to him. I've been washing his blood and I'm going to tell others about him. I'm not going to just be a secret service undercover agent who just witnesses by my life. The Bible doesn't say Noah was just a liver of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. He talked about things to come, even though he knew that no one else was believing it. But I want you to go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, because there's another lesson that Peter draws, and it's really interesting. So we learn that from Noah, that biblical faith is a life of faith that pleases God. But we also learn from 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christian conversion is like Noah's ark. And it reminds us to live for him. Let me say that again. Christian conversion is like Noah's ark. And it reminds us to live for him. Peter's writing to a a group of suffering Christians who are being persecuted, and some of them are are, are wanting to give up because it was hard. And so in urging them to follow God, no matter what others thought, he, he appeals to Noah's Ark. He says, listen, in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is a very debated verse, verse 19. It says, in which he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. And there's two views on that. Either either Jesus went down into hell during those three days that, that he was in paradise to make a proclamation to the fallen angels who are in, in hell, or 
He's simply saying that the same Holy Spirit back in Noah's day, Jesus was preaching through Noah. But look what it says in verse 20. He was preaching to those who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. See, every day of those hundred some years, God was patiently waiting for men to repent. During the construction of the ark, and Peter says, think about it, back then only eight persons were brought through the water. But then he says, by the way, there's a connection for you, brothers and sisters, corresponding to that, just like Noah's ark saved them, he says, baptism now saves you. You're like, wait, Pat, Tom, so, so I have to get baptized to get saved? By the way, if you're familiar with the Church of Christ, that's what they teach. They use this verse. They say, look, it says you have to be baptized to be saved. But again, that's where we learn to interpret Scripture with Scripture. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. The Bible says we're saved by faith, not by works. Well, what did he mean then? Well, he tells us what he meant. Not water baptism, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but conversion and appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so just as Noah was willing to get on the ark by faith and to, to leave the world behind, God's saying to you and me, you and I, if you're a true Christian, you've been converted, you've appealed to God, you've, you've called out to the Lord to save you. And then you were baptized to indicate that. Or were you? You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, when I read the New Testament, I don't see any such thing as a, as a convert who says, I want to follow Christ and says, but I'm not getting baptized. You see, the New Testament assumes that if you're going to follow Christ, that you're going to get baptized as a public declaration. Noah didn't have a back door to the ark where people could say, listen, I, I want to get on, but I don't want anybody else to know. So can I sneak around the back? You came on publicly if you came at all. And so we're taught that Christian conversion and baptism is like Noah's Ark. But the interesting thing is then Peter draws out an application. He goes, you know, think about Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Because if you suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. So you're living the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. This is not popular, nor is it easy, but this is biblical. Christians have been bought with the blood of Jesus so that we live for him, not for us. See, we, we've truncated Christianity in America to hell insurance. Hey, you want to you get Jesus in your life? You've got problems? Just raise your hand. He'll give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's why Jesus died for you. He did die to forgive us. He did die to redeem us. He did die to shower his love upon us so that we might receive his grace. But he also died so that we live for him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, Christ died for us that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him. You say, well, all right, so what's that have to do with Noah's Ark? Well, ask yourself, who are you living for? Well, you're like, oh, if only I could be like Pastor Tom. He probably lives every minute for Jesus. 
I want to, but isn't this part of our Christian faith that we gather together and we listen to the word and we're like, Lord, wow, how'd I get over here? Recalculating, bring me back, Lord, that every day, like Noah, like Jesus, I want to live for you, amen? And then one last thing, I want you to turn to 2 Peter 3 as we close. Peter, Peter must have... Must have really liked the story of Noah because he, he, he went to it. It was his go-to story. We're flying back from, actually we're flying on the way out to my daughter's and we're landing in Las Vegas and there's an African girl from Kenya sitting across from me, very striking girl, she's a beautiful girl. She gets on, she sits down across from me and I'm reading Tim Keller's book on prayer, which by the way, Tim Keller's book on marriage is there. No stampeding though, but you can now buy it, okay? So, um, she looks over and she sees it's a book on prayer. She says, what are you reading there? I said, I'm reading a book on prayer. And I said, I'm a Christian. I said, it's a really great book. I said, are you a Christian? She goes, yeah. I said, really? I said, tell me a little bit about it. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? She goes, I don't know. I said, well, are, are you living your life for Jesus? She goes, no. I said, well, do you come from a Christian family? She goes, oh, yeah. She goes, my mom's back in Kenya. She prays for me all the time. I said, does she kind of consider you the black sheep? She goes, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, so, so then you're not living for Jesus. She goes, no. I said, why not? I said, where are you heading? She goes, oh, I'm going to Las Vegas. Oh, where are you going? To party. And you know, it's heartbreaking as I thought of that little girl. And, and I said to her, I said, you know what? I said, be sure to tell your mom her prayers are not in vain because she sat next to a preacher who was preaching to her and urging her to repent and come back. And it is such a heartbreak to think that so many of our loved ones, our friends and our neighbors are not on the ark with us, right? And it's even more painful when they make fun of us and they go, are you kidding me? I pity you. But then I go back to the word, and I want you to look with me in 2 Peter 3 as we close. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. I want to stir you up by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior, saying this, Know this, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? And literally, as I'm talking to this Kenyan girl, there's two other Kenyans. I didn't realize this. They were all heading out. There was a big rugby match, and they're all going out to Las Vegas. And, and I see them sort of laughing and mocking. And, and, and I said, well, what did you say to them? And she said, oh, I told him he's telling me about Jesus, right? And we as Christians, we go, well, see, I, I, I found a way you don't have to get laughed at. Just witnessed by your life. So I just kind of like, I witnessed to her by my life. I just, Right? kind of get the point so Jesus says look this is going to happen people are going to say are you kidding me Jesus is coming again you believe that look at verse 4 they say where's the promise as it's coming ever since the fathers fell asleep all continues as it was from the beginning of creation you know what's so pathetic they don't even say that anymore they don't say all continues as it was from the beginning of creation they've even booted God out of that Nowadays, the world is just saying, all continues as it was, period, as it just 
atheistically evolved. But Peter says, oh, oh, oh. He goes, they forgot. They forgot about the flood. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. So today we look back in history and we go, wait, this world in which I stand on one time was flooded completely. God judged the whole world of sinners with a flood. But look at verse 7. But the present heavens and the earth, even the ones with snow out there, by God's word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So don't let this fact escape your notice. Peter's telling us, Christians, that with the Lord a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And we're like, well, why hasn't he come back yet? What's he waiting for? Verse 9 says, The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God could shut the ark any day now, folks, right? Amen? That sort of causes me to recalculate, what what am I doing with my life? And so Peter says, the day the Lord's going to come like a thief. Jesus said this. He goes, just like in the days of Noah, they're drinking, partying, having weddings until the flood came. The same thing today. All is well, you know, Super Bowl, and we got everything gone, you know, the economy. The scripture says, hey, the day of the Lord's coming like a thief, and these heavens will pass away with a roar. You're like, well, what's that got to do with me? Well, look at the next verse. Since all this world is going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people should you and I be in holy conduct and godliness? You say, oh, pastor, I don't, I don't have time to really pray every day. I'm so busy. And I mean, to get involved in my church and serve and to lead my family in prayer. I mean, you don't understand, Tom. It's not like that nowadays. And you know, if I was honest on my taxes or if I start doing what's right, you know, people are always kicking me to the curb here. Oh, Okay. What sort of people should we be as we look for the coming of the day of God? But according to his promise, we look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, that's what we're looking for. But you go, yeah, but but if I wait for that, I'm going to suffer now. Yeah. Had a man in the first service. He said, yeah, I've been coming for a while. I said, I said, brother, are you on the ark? He said, no. But he said, I'm really thinking about it. So pray for this guy. He says, no, but I'm really thinking about it. I said, well, listen here. Let me remind you this. What good will it be if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Get on the ark. And you know what get on the ark means, right? Come to Jesus. Jesus is the ark. He's the way. No one comes to God but through him. But as Christians, this is sobering to look back on Noah's ark and say, that's what he did then. This is what he's going to do now, so what should I be like? Whoa. What an urgency, but what an opportunity to live for Jesus. But I want to close with this thought. More than anything else, if you don't have time to pray for everybody to get on the ark, give it your best shot to get your family on the ark.
And I know many of you have broken hearts because one of your family members is not on the ark right now, and you know it. And trust me, I ain't throwing stones because I lived for years with some of my kids off the ark. And that is a scary proposition. But God is good. God is faithful. God answers prayer. And it's always too soon to give up. And so no matter how brokenhearted you are about your loved ones, don't throw in the towel and say, oh, no. That's where faith comes in. God, hear my cry. Feels like my kids aren't listening. It feels like nobody's listening. But the Lord's listening. And nothing's impossible with God. And I can testify to my own joy, as John said. There is no greater joy than when your children walk in the truth. What a blessing it is to have all the kids on the ark now. But if you say, oh, pastor, tell me how you did it. I got a simple answer. I didn't. He did. Jesus is the way. And I urge you, if you're a Christian, just keep trusting him. Keep nailing the nails. Keep obeying him. Keep doing what's right. Keep loving your kids. Keep praying. Keep witnessing to your neighbors. Somebody brought somebody this morning and she said, hey, I brought this person because I want to bring them to the Lord. I said, fill the ark, sister. Fill the ark. And that's what we're doing, right? I thank God for so many of you that are out there trying to fill the ark. Fill the ark because the day's coming. But some of you here today, you're like, I'm not sure if I'm on the ark. Well, what are you waiting for? Right there, right now. You can get on the ark. You can say, Lord, I get it. I believe that you're coming, and I'm willing to repent from my sins, and I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I don't want to do that in private. I want to do that in public. I'll do something that I do only once in a while, but I'm going to, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. If you want to publicly confess your faith in Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never followed Christ before, but you want to choose to follow him. I want you to come and stand with me as we close in prayer. Let's stand and sing together. While we're singing, if God's tugging at your heart, it doesn't save you, but if you publicly want to stand and follow Christ, come and stand with me. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have